Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Jonathan Briggs, the author of Sounds French, Globalization, Cultural Communities, and Pop Music, 1958-1980, to and the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Hi there, Jonathan. Hi, Roxanne. Big fan of the show. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for joining me today. Could you begin by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Well, sure. Um, like a lot of the uh, scholars that have been part of this podcast, a lot of it began when I was very, very young and early interactions with French language and French culture. I made a kind of momentous decision at a very young age to take French uh, and it introduced me to this world of French culture and the French people. And so it really started from there. And I had always been very fascinated by the similarities and differences uh, between American culture and French culture. Um, so, so it's been something that's been a fascination of mine since I was a teenager in some ways. And once I, I began to study history, I still remain fascinated with French history. So this became a way of kind of uniting those two ideas, being a French historian. I could, I could marry my fascination with French culture, with studying the past and um, and there you have it. And music? Sure. I, I, I grew up as a uh, both a listener, an avid listener of music. And then at some point, like many music listeners, I became interested in making my own music and tried that route for a little while, uh, gigged in bands, things like that for a number of years, uh, became very interested in recording. And uh, I really wanted to develop that side, but it didn't really pan out. And the music bubble kind of burst eventually at the end of the at the end of the 20th century, which sounds so momentous to say. But um, and um, when I got to grad school, uh, I was still a, a you know a playing and practicing musician, so it was still something that that was very passionate for me. So I guess I want to start off, Jonathan, by asking you some questions that are kind of grounded in the title of of the book, right? So the book is called Sounds French, but it's also a book about the relationship between. French music, Frenchness, and a, a broader global context. So I wonder if um, we could start there with the Frenchness of the book and and what you're trying to get at here in terms of the relationship between France and a wider world. Sure. Um, I think a lot of it, Roxanne, really stems from reactions that I would get uh, once I'd finally decided on this topic to be uh, my dissertation topic. And it was very much an, an uphill battle, especially among fellow scholars of France who really felt that French popular music was lesser, was a kind of ersatz version of American popular music. And I was, I was fascinated by that reaction and kind of puzzled by it, as these were often people who embraced all these other, other elements of French culture, of French history. And yet, uh, when it came to something like Johnny Holiday, he was also often seen as like a, a joke. And mm-hmm. knowing how passionate French people were about Johnny Holiday and how prolific he was and 
and you know how successful he had been i was i was kind of dumbstruck by that and thought there's really something here um that speaks to frenchness but it also speaks to reactions to frenchness from outside in this case uh american reactions to frenchness the frenchness can only be this kind of one thing maybe an intellectual or an artistic thing but it couldn't be say rock and roll french and rock and roll just don't go and i was fascinated mm-hmm. as to why would that be why not there i some of the great rock and rollers i know are french so how, so I was kind of fascinated by the power of this kind of stereotype among, you know, intellectuals, uh, among uh, not just people who I was trying to convince of the importance of my topic, but, you know, just kind of general listeners. So uh, that, that's really where it got started. And it, it all kind of crystallized for me, oddly enough, during my uh, dissertation defense when I played some of this music and the initial reaction was laughter. So the idea was this was humorous. So I was, again, very puzzled. This was a music that was made by people who were very passionate about this, and they felt it had great meaning to them. And yet to foreign listeners more rooted in, quote unquote, American popular music or and and its authenticity, they saw this as kind of humorous. So that to me really struck me as, okay, what is it that makes it French and also makes it odd to people who know about this stuff. So, Jonathan, the book is bookended by 1958, so the beginning of the Fifth Republic, and 1980. So I want to ask you about that periodization here. Sure. um, And what you're getting at here, why does the book start when it does, and not in 1945, let's say, and why does it end in 1980? Right. Well, 1958, certainly a pivotal year politically in France, but what I would say is that culturally speaking, it really is the beginning of the rock and roll era in France, we get the, the appearance of a couple of uh, very important recordings um, that that mark the beginning of this new era of pop music. And uh, and so it really does signal uh, a change in kind of French popular culture in, in terms of music uh, from, say, like the jazz period of the 1950s, which I see more as uh, a a product of continuity of earlier aspects of French pop music, things that have been studied by people like uh, Julian Jackson mm-hmm. and Edelbeck. So to me, the, the, the fifties have a lot of continuity where this moment in 1958 really is this kind of break because it's a very definitive um, type of audience. Uh, and that audience is young. That audience is potentially affluent um, and the audience is urban. And so I see 1958 as an important marker for that, the development of this, this culture that would come to be called what I call the, the, the culture of the Copains. Uh, and then in terms of 1980, uh, again, this is, this is, uh, an important, uh, end to what we might call the early Fifth Republic, mm-hmm. uh, and which, uh, after 1980, with the with the victory of the socialists in 1981, we see a French state that is much more invested in popular culture, in particular popular music. And so, to me, again, it kind of transforms that meaning. Where in this early period of the of the Fifth Republic, popular culture is kind of left alone to have its own meanings and its own merits debated by both its producers and its listeners. Where the state increasingly uh, after 1980, becomes involved in this to the point where the state becomes a major 
uh, subsidizer of culture. Um, this is um, been talked about in the case of say like rap music. Or, mm-hmm. uh, I was thinking of the 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 interview uh, on the hip hop that talk right. So 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 to me the the intervention of the state really does kind of change the story. And of course the story of rap is a is a story that's been told many times already. And so I felt like, well, okay, that story has been told. Um, but what is it that rap was reacting to? What, what was the popular music that alienated those, uh, the birds of the banlieue? Like what, what was it that uh, was, I guess, the mainstream pop music of the time? And of course, the reactions to that is I'm just as fascinated in that too. The other thing that's really central to, well, to the title of the book and to the project here is this notion of cultural community, cultural communities. Um, so I'd like to just, before we get into the stuff of, I mean, I have so many <laughs> questions I want to ask you about the, the fantastic stories and figures that you talk about and the music that you talk about in the book, but just sort of setting up the framework here in your approach, what can you tell us about that notion of cultural community and cultural communities? What, who are you drawing on to help you think through that? Uh, what role does that play in the book? Sure. Um, well, I mean, it seems like the the kind of standard notion of a cultural community is always built upon, say, the work of the Birmingham School scholars of the 1970s in uh, in Great Britain. Um, you know, notions of subcultures and things like this. Um, but again, I find those ideas to be one a bit dated at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, it doesn't quite get to the kind of essence of communities, which is that they are these changing things. Communities, they change all the time. Um, we were talking just before uh, the interview here about a building right near you uh, being torn down, right? So, <laughs> I mean, we, we think about it like communities are always changing around us. Sure. And yet um, we often get trapped, especially as scholars, into thinking about identities as something that we can kind of isolate and find and, and kind of freeze for a moment. And I think that's that that was what I was trying to get out of, to, to kind of look at something that was a little more fluid. And so that's where music really helped me, because I feel like um, music audiences are very, very fluid. You know, there'll, there'll be artists who have um, a lot of followers, and then they might make a quote-unquote terrible record, and then they'll have half the followers, right? Well, what has happened here? Um, beyond just the idea of an artist making a terrible record, is there something else to it? Um, mm-hmm. have, have, have the tastes of individuals changed, so on and so forth. So I, I'm interested in this idea of community as this very um, ephemeral idea. And so, again, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to get to this, uh, this notion of globalization as also this introduction to this ephemerality where we, um, especially in the Western world, can experience so much at once and we can, we can experience and consume culture in so many different ways that we connect ourselves to so many different kinds of communities at once. Um, and what does that mean? Do we, how do we share ideas? How do we share values? Um, how do we speak um, as a community? Are we followers? Are we, or are we agents in this? You know, so... Mm-hmm. That's where I was really interested in, in looking at this. And, and more recently, a lot of, I guess, sociologists of music have been interested in looking at um, what they would call scenes. You know, so there's 
you know, scenes, music scenes, I guess we would call them, right? So there's scenes like here in, in my home, Chicago, there's scenes in Vancouver, there's, there are famous scenes like the, you know, the Liverpool scene of the 1960s, the beats where, sure. you know, you had the Beatles and things like this. So what does, what is the value of looking at artists within communities and what does that tell us? And so I was trying to, to follow up on, on ideas such as those but then apply them in a much broader context in this, this, this kind of, of course, the imagination of 60s France, which was all the race. It's what the debate was really about in the 1960s, um, this notion of Frenchness. So what happens when these other communities attempt to not just operate within it, but to try to escape it and, and connect to different kinds of communities? Well, you know, what kind of tensions uh, develop in society? How successful is this? And and how do they change? So it's the nature of this process, Jonathan, of recording an interview that, you know, we're talking about a book and we're talking about a book about music. And, you know, I was thinking about the fact that when I when I was reading the book, my experience of thinking through these ideas with you as an author um, was so different because I did. I stopped uh, every few pages or whatever, to to listen to some of the music that you were talking about. And I was able to do that uh, because of the companion website that provides a kind of soundtrack to the book. And so I want to ask you about that, just the sort of logistics of that and the decision to do that. But it also makes me want to ask you about, yeah, that challenge as, a, as, a, as an author of writing about music. Um, how do you talk about music? And what is the relationship in the book between really engaging the music itself, whatever that means, and the way that people talk about music during the period that you're, that you're looking at. Sure. Um, I mean, there's so much to talk about there. Um, of course, the, the famous quote we can always go back to is, um, has been attributed to so many people that it's kind of been lost, but the idea is writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Um, <laughs> which I think dancing about architecture sounds amazing and should be done. You know, maybe someone could go out and dance to this wrecked building. But, um, no, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of perplexed at times where people, um, I mean, there's so many fantastic music scholars that I know who are far better writers than I am that, that, that write about music that you would think, well, what is really happening here? But I often think about that with say, uh, art historians who mm-hmm. write about painting, somebody like a TJ Clark, how can they look at this picture that has no words and come up with, with all these words? Well, there's, there are ideas there, you know, it's a text in a way too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, most music scholars, especially with pop music have focused on words and, you know, there's something to that, but I am more fascinated by the noise part where what is this sound that is making and why is this sound um, which could just be, say, like a C major chord. What makes this sound French in this context where you put it in another context, it would be Canadian or American or Mexican. Or It's the sound is this, the tone is the same. What is it that becomes different? So I really wanted to focus on tone and sound and try to figure out a way of historians engaging with those ideas the same way. You know, we engage with with art the same way we engage with architecture. I think we're trying to engage with things like dance now. You know, we mm-hmm. we see that there is there is a text in all of these things, and and there is just like anything else, 
power and discourse and all these things embedded in these as well. So I feel like the, the idea of turning to music isn't that radical or revolutionary, but apparently among historians, it, it kind of is. So, mm-hmm. um, so for me, it also allowed me to, to use my knowledge of sound as a, as a musician as well to say, okay, well, I know how these kinds of things are made. I understand how songs are written. Uh, I understand melody and I understand tone. And so what goes behind these decisions and who is making these decisions and why? And what does it tell us about their values and, and their ideas, both musicians and, as list, and listeners, um, in these particular time periods of, of French history where there are crises going on? Um, of course, there's always the crisis of French identity, which I, I guess will always give us a, a cottage industry as, as French historians. But, but the idea is that there is a, a deliberate decision in sound. Uh, and what is that? What are, what are the thought processes behind those decisions? So to me, I, was, I, I really wanted to move away from talking about words uh, and instead talk about sounds. And then the decision to create this companion website, is that something that's yeah. been done before? I, I've never read a book this way, so I, I want to ask you about that. Certainly, um, you know, not to shill too much for my press, but Oxford um, has been trying to find more innovative ways of, of doing music scholarship. And this seemed to be one. I mean, you know, I would like to think that maybe 10 years from now, uh, my book could come out in some kind of, you know, interactive form where mm-hmm. you wouldn't even have to leave the book. You could just go straight <laughs> kind of into the book, so to speak, and hear the sounds perhaps even as you read, you know, we're all distracted readers at times anyway, but yeah, I, I think it is actually quite important to, to hear these things as a good a narrator as I hope I am. I, there's no way that I can actually give the, the, the entire narration of, of say a song because it, there is something about a sound that is a very visceral experience. So, and plus it, it also allows, you know, readers to come up with their own interpretations. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they would hear something in it and say, Oh, well, it reminds me of this or that or the other. You know, I think that that to me is the, the great value of providing essentially these documents that I've looked at to say, okay, well, this is what I think. What do you think? Um, and it gives it, it it gives the I think readers a little bit more agency and kind of getting to it. You know, I mean, often I mean we've all read so many scholarly works, and you know, where obviously there's been a lot of archival research done, and you know, archives are great, but um, the idea of having that access, um, you know, we don't always provide documents. We 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 edit out of documents, you know, and even these I I didn't do every single song that I listened to there'd be, I don't think I could legally do that, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I tried my best to like, okay, these are the ones I deem as important. And, you know, here, what do you, what do you think? You know? And what I, what I often find fascinating is that um, fans will tell me, because of course fans know way more about this than I do. I'm merely a scholar, um, <laughs> but fans will tell me, Oh, what well, this is actually the more important song or, you know, why didn't you talk about this song? You know, so I'm 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 really fascinated that because that to me tells me, OK, well, there's even more stories out there that are to be told. So I want to ask you about pop music, this and, and the question <laughs> of genre. right? So how sure. you decided, uh, well, to use that term, but also what 
what how do you make decisions about what counts as pop music? Does pop music just mean music with commercial success? I mean, there are moments in the book where that's not exactly what you mean by it. So exactly. Um, how are you defining or interrogating that notion of pop music? Well, this is one of the wonderful things about the French is that um, they're going to write a philosophical book on everything. And certainly they've written a number of philosophical works on pop music as well. And so what I've tried to do in this case is to take the French definition at heart and say, okay, well, the French are defining it as essentially what we might call kind of non-art music, although that's not really the case either. Hmm. Um, it's just a, a different kind of art, I suppose. Um, but the idea is it's music written for a marketplace. Uh, and of course, marketplace is just another way of, of saying uh, a community, right? It, it, it too is another form of community. So these are songs written with a community in mind. Maybe that community is millions of listeners. Maybe that community is 10 listeners. Um, in the case of some of these things I, I talk about, I would be surprised if more than 10 people, including myself, maybe have heard them. But they are written uh, for listeners. And I think that makes the distinction with pop music from, say, art music, which is kind of written for the sake of itself. And, of course, listeners are important to it. But someone like uh, Pierre Boulez is not really interested in how many people are going to hear his work. It's much more about kind of the mysticism of art itself, where Johnny Holiday once the experience of having the Stade de France full of people singing along with him, um, both are very French in their own weird ways. So, so to me, I, I tried to take the, the French notion with how they define pop music and embrace that. And of course it's very different from say Anglophone versions, which pop music is often has this very derisive, uh, you know, commercial music as if that's, a negative thing, this notion of inauthentic, um, which comes from this note, this divide between pop music and what we might call rock music, which is more artful, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French don't really see those same divides in the same way. It, 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 it's coming out of a very different tradition. And to me, I'm very fascinated by that. Like having grown up in one kind of um, cultural milieu to discover, oh, wait, there's a whole nother way of thinking about pop music. Uh, where it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the thing that you listen to uh, in certain contexts. You know, you don't go to the concert hall and listen to Johnny Holiday. You might listen to jazz music, you know, when you listen to this here. So I, I wanted to embrace that idea of pop music as this very inclusive thing. And then at the same time to move to genres. Um, again, I tried to take listeners themselves and artists to some degree. Mm-hmm. And and take their words to say, okay, this is where they say they belong. Why do they belong to this group of listeners? Or um, why is this music reflective of this kind of identity, according to these artists? So um, genre is one of those things that is incredibly slippery. But, you know, so is class. So is gender. <laughs> so is race, right? These, these, these great um, pillars that we've built up so much history on. We know that these two are very um, malleable forms of identity. And so I've, I found genre to be a very effective way of kind of getting at that, like, again, that kind of elusiveness of identity. And I'm, I'm sure as a as a kind of music listener, I guess a professional music listener in some ways, uh, I've always been asked, you know, hey, what kind of music do you like to listen to? And, um, you know, 
the kind of standard answer is, oh, I listen to all kinds of music, you know, which <laughs> which usually isn't really true. I mean, you you have your own preferences, but to you, it seems like you listen to all kinds of music. So I wanted to to take the listeners uh, words themselves, you know, listeners as you might imagine, they are very, very passionate about music and, you know, they have their favorite bands, they have their favorite albums, they have their favorite songs and they like some artists over others. You know, the kind of classic idea of, you know, are you a Beatles fan? Are you a Stones fan? Well, those kinds of debates played out uh, in France numerous times as well. And so I was fascinated. Okay. Well, what makes one belong to one group? What makes one belong to another group? And, do these groups change? Do they merge together? Do they separate? Do they dissolve? So um, genre to me was a great way of doing this because um, it it almost sounds, not to be too punny here, but it sounds like something that seems solid, but is always changing itself. All right. Let's, let's talk about these musicians and these sounds. Um, so the first chapter of the book, Jonathan, begins with, you start off with rock and roll's arrival in France, and you talk about these the copains and communities of youth. So what can you tell us about the way that rock and roll arrives in France? Who were les copains, and, uh, and what, what does all this tell us about youth culture in, in, in this period of the late 1950s? Sure. Um, what, one of the kind of interesting things to me about the arrival of rock and roll in France is that... Um, France was a very, in the 1950s, there were a lot of kind of musical fads. And it was the same uh, throughout the Western world. You know, you had dances that would be fads and you might have like a tango fad or uh, a bossa nova fad, things like this. So there was already this this kind of fascination with things outside of France that, that seemed to be pervasive uh, among what we might call the hit parades in France in the 1950s. Um, but the uh, the arrival of rock and roll was was really shepherded by um, a jazz musician by the name of, of Boris Vian, who was a very very clever man who died who died very young. Uh, it'd be fascinating to kind of see what where he was going to go with his art, but he died very young. Uh, but he saw rock and roll as kind of silly music in a way. He was more of a jazz fan, and so there was already at this point this division between the more serious jazz as a as a form of art and rock and roll as this kind of barbaric form of noise. <laughs> so the, the same arguments that were playing out in, uh, in the United States and in Great Britain, uh, and even in places like the Soviet Union, they were also playing out uh, in France as well. So, but beyond uh, um, never one to, to miss a buck, uh, or, a, or a, a franc, I guess, in this case, uh, he wrote a, a classic, classic song, uh, that made fun of rock and roll uh, called Rock and Roll Mops, which um, we might think of as a parody of rock and roll. He, he kind of exaggerated the style, uh, made up some silly lyrics and, you know, made a good deal of money off it. And mm -hmm. it seemed like that. OK, well, that's the end of rock and roll in France. But then as it <laughs> turned out, um, this song then led to other similar songs. So, again, where, you know, the artist kind of intended one thing. A, a parody or a mockery, but eventually it's this, this song is kind of transformed into something to say, Oh, okay, well, we can make this kind of music too. We're French and we can make French songs like this. And so other artists kind of followed up and, and of course there was the commercial aspect of it. So record companies are always looking for ways of making money. Um, this is of course true today. And it was true 
mm-hmm. uh, back in the 1950s. And so um, there was a, a, a desire for more of this music and uh, especially young people making music for young people. Um, and that's in many ways what, what rock and roll kind of became all throughout the Western world is it became young people making music for other young people. Uh, and so that's where the Copans come in. Um, we might think of them in many ways kind of similar to, um, you know, the, the baby boom generation all throughout uh, the rest of Europe. And this is a, a young, affluent group uh, who grew up during the economic miracle in France. Uh, things were actually pretty good for them. And um, their world was a world of endless possibilities. And so for them, the great possibility was leisure. And, you know, what's more leisurely than a, a three minute rock and roll song for them. And, <laughs> and so, uh, so the co bands were both the audiences, but eventually they also became the artists themselves. And to me, that was one of the kind of fascinating things about this genre that uh, has come to be called yay, yay, um, which again was meant as a derisive term, but uh, was reappropriated and in fact embraced in many uh, by many uh, young people as like, no, this is our music. You know, this is this does not belong to the older generation. So as a way of, of demarcating listeners, um, but artists were were more savvy than that. They wanted as many people listening as possible. So while they often played up this kind of young rebellious image, uh, people like Johnny Holiday uh, would eventually abandon that and try to 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 have a much more uh, broad. Uh, almost what we might call professional image uh, more in line with, with other types of uh, French singers at the mm-hmm. time. So the Copans kind of lived on the precipice of these two worlds, just kind of these old French values, these old or the older French values uh, and the kind of newer values of, um, of the economic miracle, uh, a, a more open world, a more uh, commercialized world, uh, a faster world in many ways, a noisier world, um, and a world based on the consumption of leisure, uh, which was an important part of the economic miracle. You make the point in this chapter um, where you're discussing the Copains that, that they ignored racial and gender differences. And I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about that connection to a more traditional Frenchness or idea of French community. Right. And certainly, um, there is a there's not necessarily a follow through with the discourse. So, of course, the the idea for the Copans is, you know, we're all friends, men and women, um, you know, North Africans and and white French. So there, the, the idea is like it's all inclusive. I mean, that's the notion of the word itself. Copan, you know, pal, mm-hmm. buddy. Um, and the and we find examples uh, within the Copans of um, you know, children of immigrants and, and women. And, and I think the, the women, the, the, the issue of the Copines is a bigger issue because mm-hmm. the Copines were um, in many ways, just as popular uh, a Francoise ID or a, a Sylvie Vartan mm-hmm. were equally as popular as a, a Johnny holiday or uh, an Eddie Mitchell where I don't think you see that in the case of say the United States where you don't really have, you have an Elvis Presley, but you don't necessarily have a kind of female equivalent mm-hmm. to that. Um, same case could be made 
somewhat in, in, in Great Britain where you have say like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, but you have no one that really does kind of match up in the same sense. In France, that does not seem to be the case where mm-hmm. young women were equally as important. However, um, what, one of the things that, that I, I kind of left more subtle in this chapter, but it is that, um, it's inclusive, but we might also think of it as kind of racially white, uh, meaning that um, the Copans are for this kind of this inclusive identity, the same way, say, like a, um, you know, the national project of France might be for an inclusive identity, mm-hmm. so long as it follows these notions of identity, you know, these notions of Frenchness. So it's these notions of Copanazism. Uh, Copanazison. So these mm-hmm. notions of this is what it means to be a copan, you know, where race isn't really talked about. Um, which you think about it, like what's going on during this period is uh, the end of this very violent war uh, in which a lot of these young people are having to be involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's a, uh, and in many ways, it's a civil war uh, as well as a war of decolonization. So, um, the rhetoric is nice, but I, I think in the end there are some limits to how far that idea can be pushed in terms of, of say, race. Whereas in terms of gender, I think there's there's a little bit more equality that I think was m- maybe a brief moment. I don't know that that's you know I'm I'm thinking still thinking about it through in terms of now, and mm-hmm. I don't know that it's kind of maintained that that same level. But um, in that moment in the early '60s. Young women were um, very powerful pop stars in the same way that young men were. And I, in many ways, I think that's unique to France. Hmm, that's really interesting. So, Jonathan, you, you go on to talk about chansons and, um, you know, some of these pillars of post-war French music. Brel, yes. Ferré, Gainsbourg, also, um, you know, the actor, the poet. What do you call him? The actor, the poet. Uh, the artist and the iconoclast. Um, and yeah. you make the, make the point in this chapter, you're sort of looking at all of these different, I mean, I wish we could spend an hour talking, well, several hours talking about each one of them, but <laughs> you bring them together to make a point about uh, French chanson as a site of globalization. So could you sort of say a little bit more about what, what you mean by that? Sure. And again, um, what I, this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier about mm-hmm. sound, right? So one of the, the most, and so much has been done on chanson, and for very good reason. It's a very important genre in French music. Uh, it's, it's seen as an elevated form of art uh, by many as kind of a prime example of what it means to, what, what French popular music actually is um, for many. Uh, but I, of course, am interested in what it sounds like. Um, and I think a lot of scholars have focused instead on the, 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 the beautiful poetic aspect of it, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, somebody like a Jacques Brel doesn't get up there and talk. Uh, he gets up there and he sang. Well, Gainsbourg might get up there and talk, but uh, Jacques Brel, he, he sang. He, you know, he emoted through music. And so I was really interested in, in, in trying to move beyond just the talk of words again and to say, well, what does chanson mean? as a sound and what i found fascinating is that these three men that that Brasson 
and Ferré, they were essentially put forth as this kind of pillar of this is what real French popular music is. And yet within their own sounds, within their own ideas, you can see that they're kind of open to some of these influences uh, from outside of France. And they mm. are doing their best to kind of integrate uh, what we might call some modern sounds into uh, into their music. And so I was really fascinated by how that discussion has really not been talked about that, you know, there has been this discussion of their words. Uh, there's been this discussion of how they themselves in many ways kind of rejected notions of pop music, but it, in some cases, uh, especially in the case of somebody like uh, Gainsbourg, but even Ferré, um, they were open to many of these ideas as as artists and explorers of of different sounds. Mm-hmm. So to me, um, I think that's why I, I was I wanted to say, you know, okay, well, we we tend to think of chanson as this idea, and of course, the French themselves, they've, uh, I mean, there there's an entire just whole cases of books and the BNF. Uh, trust me, I've looked at them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> about chanson where the French have written a lot about it. And I was just fascinated by kind of this rehearsal of myth about it, that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like this old, almost um, unchanging form. And I, and certainly that could be made the case if we're just looking at words, uh, but that's not what chanson is. And so I'm fascinated by the, ch- the, the change in sound. And of course, the fact that it's happening in the sixties, to me, is not a coincidence, but a time of great uh, social and cultural change in, in France, the 1960s. So this very, um, this very central notion of French culture, uh, on the one hand, is being, is, is being presented by artists and by uh, music critics as this kind of unchanging form. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the other hand, it very much is changing if you pay attention to the sound. You go on in the book, Jonathan, to talk about 1968 as a kind of watershed moment in pop music and to talk about the progressive rock. And I guess I want to ask you what what that term means exactly (laughs) um, after 1968. So what are you getting at here in terms of the relationship between music and politics and and yeah, the role that that 68 plays in the story that that you're telling here? Well, in in many ways, um, the events of 68 sort of kind of a, a a, a parenthetical period. It's, it's a very non-musical period in many ways. There are, mm. there are some important musical movements, um, you know, in the Sorbonne there, there are a few um, musical organizations that join in the general strike, but, but for the most part, um, music didn't play the same kind of unifying role that it did say in uh, the American civil rights movement or, uh, you know, the, the, the protest movement. Uh, in Berkeley or in Chicago in 1968, um, it, it, it played less of a role. And so what I see though, is that uh, after 68, a lot of musicians, uh, especially on the political left, realized that, that, that there was kind of a missed opportunity. And so they seek to find a way of, of marrying these, these kind of seemingly incompatible ideas, you know, uh, pop music, which is, you know, this consumerist market driven music, uh, and, uh, very radical leftist ideas seeking to overturn French society. Um, and, uh, for the most part, I would, they don't really, 
mesh them together very well. But I'm I'm fascinated by the you know the idea of these kind of long hairs down in their laboratories trying to fuse <laughs> these two you know these two atoms that that just can't mix together and the, the you know the frisson that they get because to me it's a uh, it, it's quite amazing this this music um, and the term progressive rock is actually a, a British term mm. um, and it it came to mean this kind of uh, this art music this this um, merger between rock music and uh, art music so like uh, this is like the period where you'd have bands playing like Pachelbel's Canon or uh, they'd be doing like Rimsky Korsakov, but with rock instrumentation. Um, so these, th- th- this kind of almost like facile way of thinking about these two things. But mm-hmm. in the French case, I think they took a much more, um, a, a much richer approach to it because I think they were, they were very, very serious about their politics um, because, because again, I think this is the case for young people. Uh, this is a place where they saw, okay, well, the political revolution failed. Perhaps this cultural revolution that we're seeking could come through through pop music. Um, of course, that would mean that lots of people would have to listen to this, uh, <laughs> and nobody really listened to this. Uh, uh, th- th- this is a, this is very fringy music. Uh, right. So I'm I'm fascinated. Like, how do you create a popular revolution with music nobody wants to listen to? Um, <laughs> But they were they were trying to work out this this conundrum, and uh, I think in the end, uh, these these bands who were very very passionate about their politics uh, eventually kind of abandoned the political aspect and kind of went for the art for art's sake aspect uh, of this this particular genre. So they, in many ways, they kind of followed uh, the paths of, of progressive rock music elsewhere in the world, but. For this kind of strange period of about five years, the French were trying something that lots of other places weren't really trying. Uh, and again, I, I think a lot of that has to do with the power of 68 as this symbol, maybe a failed revolution or, you know, we just needed to go a little bit further. And I mean, you can see this with, you know, the formation of, of Trotsky parties and mm-hmm. um, parties. So, and, and in fact, uh, in this chapter, I talk about how some of these bands tried to you know, run themselves along very much these ideas. Um, and it didn't make them very popular, but it makes for some kind of fascinating insight into this period. Yeah, it sort of makes me want to ask you, Jonathan, that, you know, they're, they don't want to listen to this. People don't want to listen to this music. But, of course, people are all, well, maybe not always, but they are often listening to music. And so I'm just wondering about how you negotiate in the book this interest in globalization at, with for yourself, you know, an interest in music that is produced, well, by French or at least Francophone artists, not exclusively, but predominantly for a French and Francophone audience, with the fact that people are listening to music from all over the place, and especially from the United States and Britain and, and that sort of thing. So is it that the folks who are most committed to that politics are listening to music from elsewhere that may or may not be committed to that politics? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. And I think that, uh, I think that that is the case. I think that one of the things about this particular music and, and what's also interesting about that is I don't think it's necessarily just this kind of underground music. I think that the larger framework, the, the kind of, uh, commercial popular artists are also looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It's just where they're looking 
So a lot of, of say, like these artists are looking to, you know, the experiments of electronic musicians who are interested in, in looking at sound as a, a, a form of, of art that can be democratized and that everyone, that all sounds should have a value. And, and, and they're really kind of embracing a more uh, democratic idea of art. You know, these are, are, are kind of people who are working in Musée Concrète at the time. Um, but also looking, uh, one of the, the big things happening is that um, there are these radical transformations in American jazz at the time. We get the development of, of free jazz, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, very uh, upfront about its politics, uh, which it has to be because uh, the sound itself is so aggressive. Uh, but it is just sound. So it's often accompanied by, you know, manifestos. The sound is about. Um, you know, discrimination in the United States. And so uh, French listeners really embraced uh, those ideas. And in fact, a lot of free jazz artists from the United States were more popular in France. Uh, They actually had longer careers uh, playing to audiences in France. And so there is this, this kind of global, again, this global embrace of these forms. So, can the form of free jazz be integrated into French popular music to transform uh, the consciousness, if you will, of the listener? Well, it wouldn't appear so, but there were attempts to do it. And so I'm fascinated by those attempts or, or, you know, should there be these demarcations between high art and low art? Well, you know, progressive rock musicians didn't think so. They thought there should just be kind of one art for all. Did that really work out? Not really. But again, it, it does speak to uh, these kind of revolutionary interests and how a number of artists during the early 1970s were trying to make pop music not just not just popular, so to speak, but also uh, revolutionary mm-hmm. along with these ideas of 68. You point out um, as you move into the discussion of uh, regionalism and folk culture in Brittany in the 1970s that most of the book is focused around Paris. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that, thinking about the urbanization and the urban centers um, with, with respect to the project here, but also that moment where you go in the book, where you focus on Brittany and this idea of the folk, what's the relationship of that piece of it to the, to the larger argument that you're making in the book? Sure. Um, well, and one of the things that's important to think about is that, uh, I mean, Paris was certainly uh, a commercial center, you know, all the major recording studios, all the major record labels, mm-hmm. um, the, the major theaters, they were all located in Paris. If you were going to be a popular musician, you, you kind of had to, you know, if you could make it there, you could make it anywhere, <laughs> so to speak, right? It, it's kind of funny how some of these things just, just kind of happen that way. But, um, but it does seem to create this, in some ways, a very insular idea of, of Frenchness. So, I really wanted to find uh, a counterexample and regionalism was such a, um, a powerful and passionate issue in the 1970s that, um, that it seems like, okay. And regionalists, uh, especially regional musicians weren't as interested in working within the same frameworks that popular musicians were interested in. They were interested in promoting their particular values. And of course their values spoke to a different community, this community of the region, um, whatever that is. So I, I 
wanted to focus on that. And Britney just seemed like such a powerful example because the musicians from there, in fact, were very successful, not just uh, in among French listeners, but um, among European listeners. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like Alain Sibel and Trion, they, they had... Uh, an international fan base. And I thought, sure. okay, well, they're, they're speaking to these ideas that are very, very specific and very, very particular to, you know, to islands, to dialect, to, you know, these very um, mythical ideas of this tiny place in France. Mm-hmm. And yet the audiences are, are quite large. Like how, how does that happen? And what does that mean? Of course, that these ideas are, are moving across borders uh, especially within the debates about regionalization. What, what is the relationship between the region and the nation in France? Um, mm-hmm. An issue I still don't think that has been resolved. Um, and I think that is still an ongoing issue in France. As someone who, who lived in Brittany for a while doing research, it's very, very, very different uh, than being at the BNF or, or being, you know, in the Ile-de-France. It's, it's a very different notion of even music itself. So the other part of the 70s that you look at is you come back to Paris to talk about punk. Yes. And you talk about punk in Paris in the 70s and look at it in terms of the limits of globalization and make the argument essentially that the punk failed. So I wanted to ask you to say more about that. Sure. Well, one of the, the things that I found very fascinating about uh, French punk is in many ways, this is where the, the entire project started. Hmm. Um is that uh, I've read a number of books about about punk itself. And, of course, punk is often seen as either an American phenomenon or more often a British phenomenon. Right. Uh, and there is very little written about uh, the French context. And what I did find, in fact, it turned out to be actually wrong, which I was fascinated by, you know, but in the same sense, it'd be like, well, who would care? And then I realized, <laughs> <laughs> well, I care. Uh, so um, so I wanted to to find out what was happening. And um, I mean, as it turns out, the French were very, very open to punk. And in many ways I was like, well, of course, you know, punk is all about, you know, tearing down cliches and it's all about, um, you know, reinventing yourself and, you know, that you could be somebody different and you didn't have to have musical talent. You didn't have to be trained. Um, And so I thought, well, if French music is looked at as this kind of ersatz thing, you know, well, punk is all about like the celebration of the ersatz. So punk should be really big in France. And in fact, in many ways it was, there was an absolute uh, overflowing of bands. Um, And I wish, I mean, I wish I could have been there because I know with punk, there were so many more that didn't record, but there were so many that did record. Mm -hmm. Um, And they all, they all were participating in this culture that, you know, they saw themselves as part of but that in many ways, the, the punks in, in Paris believe they were part of an axis. You know, there was there was New York and then there was London and then there was Paris. And it was like this axis, the axis of punk, you know, I guess mm-hmm. it sounds kind of sinister. But um, but the idea was that, you know, they belonged to, again, this cosmopolitan community. So I wanted to understand, well, how is it that the French in many ways could understand punk culture and yet in many ways it didn't work out for them. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of where it gets back to, to this notion of communities. Well, you can say you belong to community as much as you want, but it's a dialectical thing. I mean, others in the community have to agree with your, uh, what we might call citizenship in the community. And if, if that's rejected, 
then you don't belong to that community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to me, that's why I wanted to talk about kind of this limits of globalization that, you know, we can talk about um, how there are all these opportunities that global culture creates. And yet at the same time, it also creates these divides because there are people who, who play country and Western music in, in, you know, Azerbaijan. Are they seen as belonging to the Nashville sound? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm, and I'm kind of fascinated by it. Well, well, why not? And what is it that's happening? And so to me, I thought punk would be this kind of great moment where all of these divisions were were going to kind of fall. And in fact, what, what ended up happening is the punks themselves in France uh, had this rigorous, deep intellectual debate, uh, <laughs> only in France, right, about what it meant to be punk. And in the end, they were divided because many said, well, you can't be punk and be French because it's all about being British um, or being American, um, mm. which I found very fascinating that, that people who understood punk would still kind of keep these, these, um, these boundaries on it. And then there were others who said, no, we are, we're just as punk as any, as anybody else. And, and I mean, uh, aesthetically speaking, I think that the bands there were aesthetically punk as, as anywhere else, but, um, they've been kind of written out of the histories of punk. So a uh, part of me, I, w- I was insisted on and in getting that in, not just because um, it talked about that, but it, it, it kind of forces us to rethink about punk as something more cosmopolitan rather than, you know, these long rehearsed stories about the Ramones or the Sex Pistols, you know, it's kind of, the, it's become a new type of classical music. You know, there's, there's Beethoven, there's, there's Bach and there's Mozart, you know, mm. in punk, there's the, the Clash, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, you know, but there's more to the story, obviously. And I think especially in the age of globalization, where these ideas can move at that moment in the late 70s, the needle didn't move, so to speak, in, in, in France, which was right there. And it was happening right there. And yet and yet it didn't happen. So, Jonathan, the book is it runs from 1958 to 1980, but in the coda to the book, you do reach into the 80s and 90s, touching on uh, electronic music. Well, first rap in the 80s, which isn't to say that it ends at the end of the 80s, but <laughs> you talk not. about rap right. in the 80s, and then you move into talking about electronic music. So I guess I want to ask you how you see the period after the 80s continuing with some of the issues and themes that you're exploring in the book, in the in the kind of chronology of the book, and what some of the breaks might be, I mean, you, you began with the discussion of what that shift to, to socialist uh, government means right. um, in the early eighties in terms of the music, what is the break there and what do the eighties and nineties, where do they take us? Well, I think one of the, the kind of compelling things, um, I mean, what happened with punk, the kind of opposite happens with rap in that French rap, as they call it, is is embraced and not just by not just by, say, like, you know, the Ministry of Culture and, and audiences, but it is seen as a kind of viable form of French culture in a way that, say, French punk isn't. It's something that, you know, is studied today in, you know, French language classes where mm-hmm. I doubt that they're sitting and listening to Metal Urbain, although they should. Uh, but, you know, the idea is like it is it is it is seen as French, even though it's rap. And even though, of course, it's rooted in the, the culture of the Balneus. So, so 
I, I'm kind of fascinated by that difference. And, and to me, of course, in many ways, it strikes me kind of similar to the story of Chanson, where, okay, here is, this is why it fits in, because, of course, rap is all about um, language and wordplay mm-hmm. and um, the importance of, like, artistic identity and, like, the the voice of the speaker, where, you know, not a lot of music is about that. But that actually seems to fit in with a lot of what French listeners might uh, be preconditioned to be looking for. Um, on the other hand, uh, French electronic music has been incredibly successful worldwide and was, in fact, uh, you know, French electronic artists were important tastemakers uh, for global pop music in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So what I find fascinating is that um, there was almost this, <laughs> it's almost like a story of struggle where, you know, you have your Johnny holidays and you have your, your red noises and all these, these, these artists that are forgotten by anybody except the French. And then you have these success stories, you know, like uh, an MC Solar or, or nowadays somebody like a Somme, um, or you have a Daft Punk who can go and win, um, you know, awards in America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's in a sense, like there has now been success where before, there was struggle. Um, so in a sense, that's, that's a very different story. But uh, I think what has happened now is that um, French music has found a more international audience. Uh, and you see a lot more uh, French artists uh, having success, not just in other countries in Europe, but, you know, having success in the United States. So um, it's it's a kind of a different story now. And I think, I think that now with the internet age and with uh, greater awareness about what's going on in different countries, you, you can see a lot more crossover. And I think, I think that's the case here. That's what's happening with uh, French pop music today. Um, and also I'm very excited. because I'm going to get to see uh, Strome in a couple oh, of Oh, I was just going to ask you. He's, <laughs> he's coming. Of course he's coming to Chicago. So I'm going to go and see him and I'm very excited. And, um, yeah. And of course, and then you have things like, um, uh, so Chicago tradition here, which is the Pitchfork Festival, it now has, uh, a, a, there's a Pitchfork Festival in, in Paris. So Paris has its own group of hipsters. And so mm-hmm. it, there is this kind of all of this kind of cross pollination that seems to be going on now that in many ways, when I was looking back at this period in the seventies, that, that, that germination didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. So it seems like that, that maybe, Finally, with um, with greater access to culture and information um, through file sharing, through blogs and things like that, like that there is a a greater kind of um, audience for French pop music. Well, Jonathan, there's about a million other things I want to talk to you about, but (laughs) I'm just going to ask you one more question, which is what are you working on now? Oh, well, um, so I've been working on French pop music for about uh, 12 years of my life. And I feel like I cannot say another thing about it um, or at least write another thing about it. Um, I still don't mind talking about it. But uh, so with my next project, I've uh, I, I've uh, begun working on um, an analysis of the politics of the treatment of autism in France, which I see as um, part of a different kind of globalization, which is the globalization of um, medicine. Huh. And the ideas of um, normality and uh, the ideas of uh, kind of medical, medical practices and how they uh, affect 
other communities elsewhere. So, of course, uh, France treats autism in radically different ways than Anglophone countries, but that is changing uh, due to a lot of pressure from things like the uh, the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in where and the kind of origins of that, you know. Well, that sounds fantastic, and I'd like to talk to you about that. Yeah. I'd yeah. like to keep talking to you about music off off air, <laughs> but um, talk to you about that book when it when it's out in new book form. Uh, Jonathan, I just want to thank you so much for writing this fascinating book and for uh, joining me and talking with me about it today. Well, thank you so much, Roxanne. I really appreciate the time as well and all the great questions. <laughs>